to Let's Schmooze. I'm Doug Ebach, the original screenwriter for the movie Sweet Home Alabama. Each month, I bring on guests for a discussion of topics relating to writing for various entertainment media. Today, I have some great guests who write for television animation. Uh, I have Steve Melching, who is best known for X-Men, the animated series, Batman, the Brave and the Bold, Transformers Prime, Star Wars Clone Wars, and Star Wars Rebels. I also have Shane Siders, who has written for such shows as Nico and the Sword of Light, DC Superhero Girls, and Netflix's Saint Seba. All right, so I'm gonna start off with the question that pretty much we, all, that always gets asked in all of these kind of things, which is, you know, how did you get into the business? Um, although this, I think, I suspect, um, may be a little different because I'm guessing that maybe not both of you intended to write animation when you first decided to come into the business. So maybe how you got into animation is, uh, is an interesting story. So um, let's start with Steve. Why don't you tell us how you got? Sure. Uh, well, I grew up, uh, I grew up in the seventies and eighties uh, during a time when, uh, you know, the networks reigned supreme uh, for animation. You had your Saturday morning cartoons was sort of a staple of growing up. And uh, I loved watching the cartoons. Um, but, you know, to be completely honest, a lot of them weren't very good. There was a lot of great classic ones like the Warner Brothers Looney Tunes that I loved. And there were a lot of shows during that period that I had a lot of affection for and that I watched regularly. But um, it wasn't something I aspired to do. I wanted to be a movie writer. And so uh, uh, I went to the USC Film School. I think Doug also went to the USC Film School and uh, with, the, with an eye towards writing movies. And uh, I graduated and was working on movie spec scripts. But at the same time, uh, I had a, uh, a girlfriend working at the Fox Kids Network in the early 90s. And as many of your listeners or viewers may know, that was a, that was a, a great uh, uh, venue for uh, sort of the rebirth of Renaissance in animation in the 90s. They started doing things like Tiny Toon Adventures, <clears throat> Animaniacs, uh, Batman the Animated Series, and, and all that stuff. And um, there was an executive there uh, named Sidney Iwanter, who was in charge of developing a number of those shows. And uh, because it was such a small group of people I just got to know everyone there by virtue of hanging around with my girlfriend and going to their parties and stuff. And Sydney <clears throat> took a liking to me and encouraged me to read the animation material that was coming in. <clears throat> you know, he'd be melting. Yeah, it's a new Batman script. You know, take make make yourself a copy. And I'm like Batman, I love Batman. They're doing a new Batman cartoon. Cool. And I would read the scripts that were coming in by you know Alan Burnett and Paul Dini and a lot of those great writers. From that, from that show and uh, Randy Rogel. And I'm, I'm reading these scripts and I'm like, these are great, this is so cool. And then uh, the first test animation came back from the animation side and it was the animation that ended up becoming the main title sequence for the show. And if you're familiar with that, you know how gorgeous that was. So seeing that with that sort of Danny Elfman music and these great scripts, like this is something special, like holy crap, this is amazing. And uh, so Sydney encouraged me to, to, to write because he knew I was a writer. So I wrote a Batman spec script because I loved the show. And to this day, the only animation spec I ever wrote <laughs> was for that show. And uh, unlike a lot of aspiring writers, I finished my animation spec script. So that's key number one, if you're trying to break into the business, finish something so you can have something to show people. So I, I gave the script to Sydney and he liked it. He thought it was good. And so he recommended me to uh, Eric Leewald, 
who was uh, running the, the new X-Men animated series that hadn't come out yet. And uh, Sydney said, you know, Batman, you know, that's winding down. X-Men is where it's at. And they're like, X-Men, I love the X-Men. I read the comics all through the 80s. So uh, Eric uh, read my script and, and thought it was good. So he uh, invited me to pitch story ideas and uh, pitched, pitched a story that he liked and uh, hired me and my, my then writing partner, Dave McDermott, to, to write the script. And we did a good job on it and didn't, weren't late and didn't screw it up. And so Eric invited us to submit more ideas and we ended up doing like eight or nine of them uh, for that show, for X-Men. And, um, and uh, then it, it, the way, it, animation is a small community. So Eric would go on to a new show and would bring all of the writers that he had good experiences with uh, along to the new show to work on it. And it's a small enough community that all the story editors and producers kind of talk to each other and say, you know, I'm looking for a writer. Do you have anybody that's good? So I, we kind of got a, a reputation as, as being uh, solid uh, animation writers. So uh, we, through just word of mouth recommendation, uh, our career continued to, uh, to grow. And uh, I, I worked for 10 years in animation without an agent or a manager, just strictly by um, word of mouth. And next thing I knew, you know, I have a full on career going, you know, closing in on 30 years now in a, in a field that I had no intention of getting into, but it's been really good to me and I've really had a great time. And Shane, what's your uh, break in story? Well, to backtrack a little bit, Steve, when you, when you wrote that spec script, you probably had a bunch of live action scripts already, right? A bunch of spec scripts. Yeah, I had I had two or three feature scripts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and they were all probably excellent. Um, and that's that's kind of with me. I um I started out in kindergarten. I knew I wanted to be a writer. Uh, and I asked my dad, Dad, will you publish a book for me? He's like, I don't know how. <laughs> you know, and that's uh, so I was like, well, I guess I'm gonna go to college for writing and and all that stuff. Um, flash forward in college, I took a screenwriting course and just fell in love with with that kind of format because it's it's very visual and it's it's immediate because you're writing it in present tense and I just fell in love with it and I'm like I've got to do this but I lived in Nebraska at the time <laughs> so uh, you know, Wait, I, part where in Nebraska uh, Omaha Nebraska okay Omaha. I, I grew up uh, I lived in Bellevue Bellevue okay great yeah early, early 70s it's a great place to be from it's an awesome place um, my mom's from Nebraska, so it's all, all about Nebraska, apparently. <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> Normally, it's like, Nebraska? Where's Nebraska? You yeah. know? <laughs> so that's, my, that's, my dad was stationed at Offutt Air Force Base. <laughs> of course, yeah. That's, and Offutt is the reason why I thought that uh, everybody had tornado warning sirens, because, you know, we'd have the Offutt sirens, the Air Force Base air raid sirens would go on every time there was a tornado. So when we moved to Florida later, I was like, when there was a tornado warning, I'm like, where's the sirens? Well, not everybody has those. But yeah, so, um, you know, I, I went to school in Nebraska. I had gotten into a much fancier university. Um, Brown University was my top pick because they had a doctorate in writer in, in, in creative writing and not very many programs had that. Uh, but it turned out I didn't have the, the money and they offered a full ride, but then they reneged on the first, um, the first uh, semester. So I'm like, well, you know what? I'm not gonna wait, I'll just go to, uh, to school here and then I'll go there later and I end up liking it and so and then I fell in love with that screenwriting class and then that was it for me so now I'm like 
I'll follow my my future husband to Florida, but I'm going to be working on screenwriting, and I was writing specs, um, and uh, mostly a lot of TV specs too at the time. Um, but then you find out you really have to be in California, and it, maybe it's a little easier now because of virtual stuff. But you have to meet people, just like Steve said, um, word of mouth got passed around about how good he was as a writer. But if he hadn't met all those people in the first place, they wouldn't have known he was a good writer. So um, so I had gotten a call from, uh, I'm not going to say what show, but I they have, um, the Writers Guild had programs for minorities and women and men over 40 were considered um, minorities at the time. So we, so I applied and they'd be basically just send a letter to a show you're interested in and say, hey, I'm interested in this program. Would you, would you hire me? And they basically hire you like as a writer's assistant or something. And I got a call and I'm in Florida and you know, I already had a range with my boss. If I get a call on this, I'm, I'm flying out to California. I'm going to be there for, I think it was six to 14 weeks. I'm going to be there. Uh, and I'm going to just drop everything and do it. Is that okay? And she's like, sure, you go right ahead. I got that call. And the guy's like, um, so when can you be in here today for the interview? <laughs> There's no virtual stuff back then. So I'm like, I can't be in there today, but I can be there tomorrow. And he's like, oh, everybody we need to, we need to um, talk to you is um, only here today. So, but you know, we have a, a cycle. We take somebody from a college, then we take somebody not from the college. So we'll, we'll call you next cycle. And um, I knew the, the show was supposed to be ending at, at some point. So I had basically asked him, I think I may have called him back and asked him, hey, will the writer's duties, the writer's duties be the same uh, in the next cycle because as they are this cycle, because I know this show's supposed to be ending. He's like, oh yeah, the writer helps break down, the writer's assistants will help break down scripts. There'll be plenty of scripts to break down. Don't worry about it. You're our top candidate. And I don't know if they just said that to, to be nice, but it really gave me hope. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I'm their top candidate. I'm going to call them back in January. And I'll still get to do this. And, and of course, you know, I had no idea how expensive it probably was to be out in California or anything like that. Uh, I called them in January. They said, oh, we're sorry. We're out of scripts to, uh, to break down. So there's no more positions. And so then that was when I knew I had to be out in, uh, in California in order to, to be able to do this. You had to be able to drop everything at a moment's notice and go. Um, and even if I was there, if, you know, I literally was ready to have Book of Light and be there the next day. So I, we moved to California. That was my one, uh, my one condition with my husband. Wherever he got to go for his postdoc, he's a, he's a psychologist, like has to be in California. <laughs> and so he, he sacrificed his career a little bit because he had, a, he had to pick you know, places that were very, very, everybody really wanted to be in Los Angeles area. Uh, he had to contend with a lot of different people to get into Los Angeles. So um, that was that was a little rough for him, but he sacrificed and we made it to California. And then um, you, again, it's all about who you meet. Um, I happen to meet people more in animation, and I've I've been doing a lot of thinking about this because um, there's just so many people I owe my career to. Um, yes, I had to do the the spec work, um, and in fact, I had several specs. My um, I did a a spec for that so that show. Uh, they said, well, we'll, we'll have a spinoff show, so call this exact number next time, and and maybe you'll get the person you need to talk to, uh, you know, in a couple of months, and you can you can submit. And so I did, and that person goes, oh yeah, send us a send us a sample. Well, I sent a sample for that show. I wrote a sample specifically because that particular show used to take samples of their show. In fact, people could pitch to that show, uh, just regular everyday people. And um, so I wrote one, and they I came back unopened and said we don't take unsolicited scripts. I'm like, 
you asked me for the script. What do you mean unsolicited? Uh, but you know, I didn't have an agent at the time. And, uh, and so that was another reason I, I figured out I had to be there because, you know, they, at that point he's like, oh no, but we don't take ship. We don't take scripts for this show anymore. We, they, you know, we used to. And that particular script uh, was a finalist in Scripted Palooza, which was one of the bigger contests um, at the time. It's, nobody knows about it, but it's a, it's a very, it, a lot of people do it. So it was a, a large contest. So that script was decent, I, you know, but that, um, it wouldn't have helped me in animation, you know. So when I when I came out here, I started meeting a lot of people in animation, and I needed an animation spec. So until I sat down and actually made myself do that and finished one, as as Steve said, I wouldn't have gotten anywhere in animation. And it's funny because people will read you, and and they can tell you're a, a good live action writer. But I I just think there's a level of commitment you're showing by doing an animation specific script and there's certain differences between live action and animation and people don't necessarily want to have to teach you those differences as your story editor as you're the person in charge of your writing so if you can show that you can already do that and write it the right way i think you've got an advantage over other people that way too well, this is bringing up a lot of different questions so i'm gonna have to <laughs> organize them a little bit here so um so first thing is like both of you have talked about um uh, you know, like the, the necessity of meeting people, well, the two big things, right, um, uh, which I also kind of tell people when they ask me for advice is you need to have some great sample work, right, like until you can write a sample that looks great, you can meet all the people in the world, it doesn't, it's not gonna really help you. Um, but then you also have to meet people to get them to read that sample. And when one tip we've had so far is uh, come to California, that's obviously a, a big one, because uh, for both of you, that was necessary. Um, uh, come to LA specifically, California's big. Um, uh, and then, uh, so what, you know, we, we've had some different uh, ways that you can, you can get in, um, you know, uh, have a girlfriend that works uh, on the show, I guess is one of them, <laughs> but um, the... Uh, uh, no, before that though, Steve, you had done work, not just script work, but what else had you done before that? Before mm -hmm. I started in animation? Yeah, you had done some film work, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, when I graduated from USC, I, um, I, ha I worked on an independent feature and um, <clears throat> met a guy on that who was working at New Line Cinema. And uh, he got me in for an interview to be uh, an intern at New Line. And uh, I interned for this guy named Mark Ordesky, who has since gone on to be the executive producer of the Lord of the Rings movies. <laughs> but at the time, you know, we shared this tiny little office in New Line's headquarters. And I would go in two or three days a week and do interny stuff for him. And uh, then when that internship, and he was great, he's still great. He's an awesome dude. Um, but um, uh, I got a job working as a PA on some of New Line's uh, fair, including uh, House Party 2, The Pajama Jam. <laughs> Yay, I'm actually in House Party 2, The Pajama Jam. If you look very closely, I'm an, it was filmed at USC actually. It filmed all our campus scenes at USC. So I was a background extra a couple of times and uh and then did a bunch i was a puppeteer at uh, universal studios hollywood on their american tale five goes west show where he, uh, i was part of a team of three puppeteers that would manipulate this gigantic like 17 foot tall tiger the cat puppet uh five times a day <laughs> for the show um and, you know i did the typical breaking in work script reader uh, you know, assistant, you know, that kind of stuff uh, before I was able to uh, 
able to get my first writing job. And, and as Shane was saying, like meeting people, I was I'm a really shy person and um, it was really difficult for me to meet people and not only to meet people, but difficult to tell people what I wanted. And that's another important thing, like, you know, let people know what it is that you want to do, you know, because that's how they'll remember you. And if you don't know, unless you ask people for something like it never, I was way too shy to like, say, call up Paul Dini and say, hey, Paul, can I take you out to coffee or lunch and pick your brain about breaking in? I never would have done that. Um, and I wish I did, because my career might have gotten along faster than it did. Um, and, you know, so now I try to make it a point of, you know, uh, making myself available to uh, aspiring writers, uh, you know, a few times a year, I'll go out to lunch or coffee and, and, and talk to them. Hey Steve, you want to go get coffee? <laughs> yeah, when it's safe to do that, absolutely. <laughs> virtual, we can do virtual coffee. I do ice cream. I like to drink people. Oh, yeah. yeah. I got to say um, that that's that's like one of the important, I, I, one of those things that I wish I knew because I did my internship um, when I was still in school, like, you know, between my junior and senior year of college, I did my internship at Zoetrope um, and worked really closely with like Roman Coppola and like a bunch of people that, you know, at the time, you know, they were just kind of starting out and, and I met Francis a few times, but um, he was off doing his thing mostly. Um, but like, I kind of thought like, oh, I'm an intern. My job is to make copies and keep my mouth shut, right? And then like read scripts and do coverage, which they also asked me to do. Um, you know, I, I think they, they actually really liked me and they, but I was kind of too afraid to ever even say like, would you read a script? And this is after working for them for free for three months, right? <laughs> like I, and I realized like, I totally blew that opportunity. I was right there with this great opportunity to kind of like get in with people that could have helped my career. And I, you know, after it was over, I just went back to, to USC for my senior year and didn't really ever follow up. I just blew a big opportunity because oh. I was the same thing. I was too shy. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Well, you gotta, you gotta figure out what's that line between being obnoxious and pushy and being, you know, uh, someone who really is wants to learn and be open and, 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 and try to try to make the most of an opportunity, I guess, without being obnoxious. Yeah. Yeah. One yeah, of the things that so I, I want to bring that up that it, you know, there's a balance and, and to backtrack a little more, the reason why I asked Steve about his experiences, you kind of made it sound like, oh, he just got discovered by being somebody's boyfriend. But that's not really how it works. You're, you're constantly working and people are seeing you work and here you are, you're an, you're an intern working for free and they can see you busting your butt. But if you weren't, doing a good job at being an intern and and all you were doing is is just hanging around the office then and nobody saw you busting your butt nobody would would have wanted to help you but once you've been there and once they've seen you and they know you and they know you're working hard and they can trust you that's when maybe you could ask them hey can i go get coffee or whatever i don't know if i'd ever ask anybody to read a script that's a really hard one for me <laughs> and I, sh I should say also at that same time i was writing the spec animation script i was writing spec movie scripts and uh, a few months after I wrote my first professional animation script, I sold one of those spec scripts to Paramount for a nice six-figure sum. And that, you know, I was in all the trades. And so my stock in the animation world suddenly <laughs> got up like, oh, he wrote a movie, a movie that a studio bought. We got to hire him some more. So that, that helped also. Yeah. And of course, that was a different era because that spec market, it just sort of doesn't exist anymore. But yeah, like, you know, because uh, and mine got made, you know, Sweet Home Alabama was the same kind of thing, right? Like there was a time where you could just do something, a good script and, and actually sell it. And I feel like that doesn't really work anymore uh, that way. But yeah, no, I think Shane did a very good point because, um, you, know, I, you know, certainly that's been one of the themes of, of from the various guests is like, you know, um, 
you, you get your break and usually it seems incredibly lucky, but it's, but it's like, because you've been doing a hundred different things, right? And then the break will come from something else that is a result of those hundred things you did. It never works the way you think it's going to work. So you can't like plan for the break. You just have to be in there kind of doing it, you know, and then, and then it, you know, like things come to you if you're putting out the, the effort. And if you turn out the right vibe, again, if you are the whiny, complainy type who, who nobody wants to be around because you bring the, the room down all the time, that's yeah. going to affect you too. So it's, it's, a, and it's hard work. And if you're shy and don't tell people, you know, hey, I'm a writer, that's going to affect you too, because people will be like, oh, I didn't know you were a writer. I, maybe I could have hired you as my writer's assistant. Yeah, or whatever. Absolutely. And what is the saying? Like luck is uh, preparation meets opportunity. Or something yeah. Like that. yeah. So, and you know, it's funny, I grew up in a military family and uh, uh, my father was a bit of a disciplinarian and, and, you know, was not, I had no family connections to the entertainment business, but it was something that I realized I wanted to do from a very young age. And um, uh, so I was always, I always gravitated towards all the geek nerdy stuff. So I loved comic books and animation. I played Dungeons and Dragons and, you know, all that kind of stuff back in the 70s and 80s. And that my dad thought was kind of a waste of time. Like he would come home from a, <laughs> from a day in the Air Force and see me drawing pictures or working on my Dungeons and Dragons campaign as dungeon master. And, you know, he would give me grief about, you know, you should be out there hustling and getting a job, you know, at the, you know, at the fast food restaurant or whatever, flipping burgers or whatever, like, but I don't want to do that. Like, you know, reading comic books and drawing pictures and watching cartoon, watching these cartoons. And it was so, so gratifying that years later, like, I make a living doing all this stuff that I loved as a kid. And in some cases, it's like, I used to watch the Transformers show. Now I write for the Transformers show, or, you know, I love Star Wars. I had Star Wars posters on my wall, and now I'm writing for Star Wars. And, you know, so it's all that, all that quote unquote preparation, like, but it was, you know, came from a place of love uh, and fandom that I was lucky enough to be able to translate into, you know, uh, practical experience for a career. Yeah. And that's yeah. awesome that we can translate that. I mean, my mom, encouraged all that for me and she even bought me my Dungeons and Dragons set when I was 10. I started playing at 10 but mostly I think that was just you know it's it's a lot of good reading and math and all that stuff and that she wanted to keep us you know busy. <laughs> she, she was a single mom for a long time and had to had to work uh, so you know that was it was very encouraging and I, and I think I, I got lucky um, compared to other people when it comes to that no one ever said don't read comics don't watch she loved it when we watched cartoons we'd watch saturday morning cartoons all the time <laughs> and she loved it i'm just gonna hit on this again like dungeons and dragons i'm so happy that that game has come back around in such a big way because it was a it's a terrific way to learn to be a storyteller um as a dungeon master to create stories and that sort of um a group uh storytelling that happens in D and D, it, it's a great training ground uh, for an aspiring writer. And you know, I had no idea at the time, but you know, it's it, it's great. So I would I would encourage people to play D and D or any role playing game. My husband and I literally had a mini argument just last night while my while my daughter was sleeping, like right over the bed, going, "Hey, you know, what system should we use? We're going to try to play Dungeons and Dragons maybe next weekend, but we can't really use the system because it's a little too complex for her." So you know, why don't we figure out what dice system we should use and things like that. Because so, we want her, she's, she loves storytelling and we want her to, to learn from that. And yeah, it's, it's helpful. Also, it helps you get along with friends and it's a good social thing. I was just as shy as you guys. You probably wouldn't believe it. 
when I came from from Florida to California, I I was reading books on like how to talk to people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like how do I come out of that shell? I just had to force myself to, to get out there and talk to people, you know, and you have to go to networking events and meet people and talk to them. <laughs> That's so, fascinating that you're like, you know, just thinking about it, like a D&D &D campaign in a way is kind of like a writer's room where you've got your showrunner <laughs> as the DM and then you've got the other members of the team and you're collectively telling the story and you're, you're collaborating and you're trying to solve problems. And like, that's a really great social training ground for a writer's crew. Yeah, it, I don't think it's an accident that a lot of writers of this generation played Dungeons and Dragons, right? And, and I never really thought about that, but like it's actually more applicable to, to the TV group process where you're working more collaborative and then feature where you're kind of usually going off on your, your own to write. Um, I also don't want to blow by, Shane, you made a really good point about like being good at whatever you're doing. And I'm, I'm a big believer in that is like, if you get an internship or, some, or, or a PA job or something, you don't go in the first day and say, hey guys, can you help me out, right? You go, in there and show them, <laughs> yeah, right. you go in there and show them you're the best as intern or PA that they have. And then like on your last day, you say like, hey, can I, you know. Can, can we get coffee or can I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah, because, um, you know, I think that's, I, I think that's a big mistake people make. I also think it kind of, it shows, a, it's just an element of character, right? Like if you put your energy into being a great PA, then they know you're gonna put your energy into being a great writer. Right. And it also goes to what he was saying about loving the material, right? Like that's, it's a genuineness there that you can't, like you can't sort of like fake loving stuff, right? If it, Don't go into these jobs thinking you're better than the job or putting out that attitude that you're slumming it or whatever. Like, no, you're a PA, you're an intern, you get the coffee, you make the Xeroxes and you don't complain about it and you make the best damn coffee you can make and you make those Xeroxes and they're nice and straight and the staples are perfect. Like, you know, you don't, you don't screw around in those jobs. You've got to show that you're that you're a team player and that you're competent. And yeah. what you're doing affects everybody else too. It's it's necessary to <laughs> to be good at it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're getting. There's a reason why they have someone to get coffee for people, right? Because they want those people working in the writers room and not getting out getting their own coffee. So you're part of the team, whether you uh, whether you kind of think of it that way or not. Um, well, if you've ever had a writer's assistant write something down, or like somebody, we, we did a, we did a little story break and the writer's assistant wrote down the ending wrong. And I'm looking at it going, did they change that after it? You know, like what happened? And, and so I had to go to the, to the story editor and go, is this right? And they're like, oh no, they just wrote it down wrong. If, if you're not doing your job right, you cause more problems for, like I could have written that wrong. I could have just like gone, okay, I'll write the ending this way, <laughs> you know, not check. And then the story editor be like, mad at me like why the heck did you change that ending Shane you know so yeah. if you're not doing your job right and accidents happen obviously but you know <laughs> so so let's um let's think about um or talk a little bit about advice for someone that's coming to LA with aspirations of being an animation writer and and they have to go out and meet people and they're shy or they're not shy but like where do you go you land in LA you don't know anybody which I think was probably true of all of us um although at least Steve and I had the advantage of being at a film school in LA where we came out of school knowing some people, but, um, but yeah, like, what do you do if you don't know anybody? Find organizations? Yeah, like organizations, events, where would you go to kind of meet and network? Well, obviously, one of the big ones is conventions, uh, you know, uh, Comic San Diego Comic-Con, Anaheim WonderCon, uh, LA Comic-Con, there's all, there's so many conventions now, and usually those, uh, I was going to interrupt and say Long Beach Comic Con is one of those yeah. small ones where you can talk to people. It's really cool. Exactly. And, and most of those cons, are, especially in the LA area, are able to get professional guests uh, to come down and do panels and stuff. And so it's much easier to at least, you know, be able to get uh, a few moments with 
with somebody in your field to, to can sort of catch them after a panel and, and give them a card or, or see if you can you know, take them to coffee or something uh, afterwards? And, and that's a great place to like, you know, hear conversation about, you know, or be part of these, you know, panels and, and, and get answers to questions and whatnot. My friend Joe brought up a really good thing. He, um, he had just, his career had just started moving. He had worked for Henson's and um, he had broken off. He'd made their, um, their comic book imprint. And he, I think it was just about the time he'd broken off and started doing his own, like he was consulting and doing stuff like that. And so his strategy was he would go up to the panelists afterwards, introduce himself and tell them the, the cool thing he was working on. Because while he's working on this stuff that they're, they're in love with, maybe it was Transformers at the time or something like that, you know. And that would get their attention and that also made him stand out in their mind a little more. So when he asked, hey, can we get coffee sometime? And they could follow up and say, hey, I'm Joe, I'm the one working on X. So it also made him look, number one, look like he's doing something already, he's not just coming to you because you know you can do something for him uh, he and i think i think that works a little bit too so you shouldn't be afraid to approach people at a comic-con um and if you have something like that, that you can share with them without being too pushy like this is what i'm doing it's all about me blah 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 i think i think that helps a little bit i liked his style it was very cool i, I think there's an advantage of being kind of like the fan first and then you know the this help me out second yeah <laughs> for sure yeah exactly i, I my my little <laughs> I was just like, didn't we meet at Comic-Con, Doug? San Diego Comic-Con. I, I think so, yeah. Possibly at the at the uh, Writers Guild Animation Caucus party. Um, but I think maybe either through mutual friends or something like that. We just ran into each other, I think. We were probably with Eugene at the time. Yeah, yeah, probably Eugene, who was on this uh, podcast a couple months ago. So, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, the other thing, I, my, my little tip for that, um, if you can find, like, there's a lot of crossover right between animation and comic books. So it, sometimes I find it's like you can really strike up conversations with people if they're in a booth. So if you have an animation writer or whatever kind of writer that also is working on a comic book and can, is going to be in one of the booths, you can find out when they're going to be there signing or something like that. Um, you know, obviously, if they're, if they're working for Marvel or DC, there's a giant line, you'll get no time. But, you know, small little indie press booths, you can just go usually talk to people for a while. And, and it's a little more forgiving them when they're kind of rushed at the end of a panel by a hundred fans trying to get their attention. That's a really good point. Absolutely. And you brought up uh, uh, another organization, uh, the Writers Guild Animation Writers Caucus that Shane and I are both uh, longtime members of and also uh, members of the steering committee. And we're kind of on hiatus right now because of the pandemic, like, like everything. But um, you can join the caucus once you've written a piece of produced animation. It just takes one half hour to, to gain associate membership in the Writers Guild. Um, but we do, the, the, the caucus does do a regular dinner every month that's open to non-members, to aspiring. Pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic, yeah. yeah. Hopefully, you know, maybe in 2021, or 2022, we'll be able to get back to it. But that's a great place where we would meet uh, either, uh, we'd alternate between the city side and the valley side. And we just have a schmooze dinner with, you know, anywhere from 15 to 40 people. And um, uh, we always have a guest speaker from the world of animation. It might be a writer or producer or director or actor or voice director, uh, agent, we have, you know, from musician, from like all the different aspects of of production and that's an opportunity to ask questions of them and 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 also just be in a room with a couple dozen other professional and aspiring writers to you know to 
to ask questions and make contacts. And, and you know, I, I think uh, writers groups are another good, uh, another good uh, thing you can, you can try to get involved in a writers group, uh, uh, sort of a support group and be able to share your work and, and get critiques. Oh yeah, people see your work and they know it's good and then they, they can invite you on to projects that they get on. Or they can see it really bad. I brought, I brought like really bad work in project progress stuff before. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's supposed to be so you can do that, right? But so you got to be careful what you drink. <laughs> well, I think, I think another thing about the whole networking, this is another little peeve of mine about the way that kind of outsiders or aspiring people, outsiders is probably the wrong word because there's no outside or inside really. <laughs> Everyone's outside. <laughs> Everyone's outside. Everyone's an outsider. You're always rebreaking in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but let's say some aspiring person, you're trying to figure out how to do this. The, the advice of networking, I think there's, there's a misimpression of like you go to an event and you pigeonhole someone and get them to give you a job. And it's like, that's just not really the way it works. Um, that networking is really about building relationships, long-term relationships. And so it's, you're just kind of like, it's not like it's going to happen in one event, right? You can't just go to one networking event and make your career. It's, you, you meet some people and then you see them again and again and you meet other people through them and it just sort of like you develop friendships really that's what networking kind of is and and yeah to call back it's it's like you know uh, when you do meet people whether it's an executive or a producer or a story editor or a showrunner um you obviously want to make a good impression and you just never know you know that what the timing is going to be you know you want to be able to take advantage of an opportunity when it comes up. That's where that preparation comes in so that you, if you have that material that you can send someone back. When I was getting started, I don't know if you did this, Doug, you would always keep physical copies of your scripts in the trunk of your car. Yeah. So if you ran into someone, you could like go to your car and hand them a copy of your script. Like now you could just email them a PDF, but you, know, <laughs> you, you want to have that material to give to someone when they ask for it. Um, right. but, but like let them ask too is one of the yes. other things is like and, don't say like oh nice to meet you here's my script like and it's not going to happen at like a party like they're not going to say can I read your script the first time you meet them it might the third time you see them you know especially if you've got something else going on they might ask it happened to me once I had a, a guy that you know I didn't know that well but I loved his work and we got to talking a lot and after about the third or fourth time I saw him at a party he's like you wanted to know if I was the real deal or not and so he asked he's like you have a script I can read and I'm like sure yeah. <laughs> if I didn't give it to him right then, I didn't have it in my trunk. <laughs> Emailed it to him. And this yeah. might sound like common sense, but when you do get that opportunity, don't blow it. Like, <laughs> do the work. Do good work on time, and you'd be surprised. And be easy to work with. You'd be surprised how many people just can't manage that. And so it's super important to like, don't argue. You know, give them what they're asking for, and just do do the work and and make their jobs easier. I always felt as a freelancer and a young writer, like your my job was to make my boss's job easier, like to give them good material on time, so that they're not stressing and waiting for something or something comes in and it's like amateur. You know, it's like you know, it, it's not good. You know, so it's. Yeah, and um, actually, so I want to get into some of the creative questions, but before I do, um, I think um, it might be worth just talking a little bit about the way, I, I guess we call it the lifestyle of the television animation writer, and because it works a little different sometimes in live action. I mean, I know there are writer's rooms in some shows, but then there's also freelancing, which really doesn't happen anymore in live action. Um, so you want to just... Um, uh, talk about maybe a little bit about like how the business works, like how you work in the business. Shane, do you want to go first on that one? 
uh, a quick addendum to what Steve was saying, um, you know, do the work. You also have to do the follow up. Like, you do have to send them the script. <laughs> don't don't freak out. Not send them the script. And then you also have to follow up and don't do it like a week later. <laughs> you know, a month later, check in with them, and maybe another month after that. You know, they, people people may not have a chance to read and they don't have time and stuff. So try to try to treat the the best way to act in Hollywood is to treat people the way you want to be treated. You don't want somebody coming up to you going, "Hey, read my script, please read my script." You know that you're gonna be like, "Whoa." That person's weird, <laughs> you know. Uh, you just just treat people the way you want to be treated, and be be a friend, and then then people are, will be friends to you. Um, sorry, now I forgot the question. <laughs> uh, like, how how does the what's the lifestyle like? How do you how does your business model work? I guess as a writer. Yeah. Well, pretty much, you look at the bank blank screen, and then you cry, and then you work, <laughs> and then you go do something else for a little while, and you look at the blank screen, and then you, um. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of procrastination involved in being a writer in some ways. I mean, I'm, I'm joking in a lot of ways, but there, procrastination is a good way to think about things and, and let things percolate in your head. So you should go for walks and all that stuff. Um, for like professional, like when you're not just sitting down and doing your own stuff, uh, it usually happens like someone will recommend you for something because they've seen that your work is good or somebody's they've heard somebody mention your work is good or you posted you were nominated for a award or something like that and that's so you should use social media by the way uh, and, and learn how to use it well i don't know how to use it well but <laughs> I, I try um but anyway so somebody will come up to you and say hey i have a possible gig for you are you interested and then you'll be like sure you know um i, I haven't turned down a lot of gigs there's been a couple that you know, maybe they wouldn't be a good fit or it was too busy but that doesn't happen a lot um and then they uh they'll go back and they'll hit your name to their boss or whatever and hopefully they'll agree and you'll get you'll get a write on this show um there's two different methods in animation that i've, I've run into first well there's there's a lot more than that but there's two different ways the show might work that i've been on now there's other shows and other ways they work um you could be completely freelance which is they they just you don't ever come in really you might do everything over email even um, or you might just come in for a quick meeting or something like that. Uh, or you could have, it's like a staff, but it's in animation, it's short. It's, um, it's usually like, we call it a summit. And you come in maybe for a summit with a group of writers and you'll pitch ideas and, and kind of develop the show a little bit, develop the season. Um, and that's a lot of fun because you get to work with other creative people and you're bouncing ideas off of people and it's brainstorming. If you've ever been in a brainstorming session, that's a lot of what it is. Um, and there'll be somebody that's in charge that will kind of help that brainstorming along. Uh, and when they, when it works, it's, it works beautifully. It's, it's so wonderful. Um, so there's the, then there's staff, which I've never been on a show that's like a full staff, like, like say a Disney show where you're, you come every morning and you're there every day and you're sitting maybe across the aisle from some artists that are working at Disney and stuff. I've never actually done that. I've done a short staff where we go in, we go in for like two weeks, we have our summit, and um, then we, we break off and we all write kind of individually. Or we go in and talk to a story editor a little bit and break down the story and then we, we go off and write individually. I mean, writing is a lone pursuit in a lot of ways. You can do most of it by yourself once you got started. And hopefully you're not bothering the story editor a lot so they can get their work done. <laughs> so once you get started, you're off on your own. 
And uh, so you have to be able to work on your own. You have to be responsible enough to do that. And if that's not, if you can't work on, on your own and you can't work with other people, then this may not be quite the industry for you. You have to be able to be good with other people. Um, and you can't just be like, like some people are like, oh, I could just be at my desk all day and not ever talk to people. It's, it's a very, um, it's a, it's a, this industry requires a lot of interaction with people and working with people in the, in the correct ways. Like, like he was saying, you don't, you don't say, you don't fight. Like somebody says, I want, I want this to happen in the story. Yes, give them your ideas and say, well, you know, what if we did this instead? Or here's the advantages of this, but you don't go, no, my way is the only way to do it. You know, you don't, you can't be like that. You got to be easy to work with. So those are the, I've only, I haven't done a full staff. Steve, you've done full staff, right? Yeah, well, I, when I started in the business, the uh, the glory days of the studio staff was winding down. It used to be, you know, Warner Brothers had, a, you know, a building full of writers or Disney had a building full of writers and they would just assign them to whatever shows they were making. So they were just regular employees that just worked on whatever they were making at the time. And that was winding down. Uh, and, and so when I started, it was primarily... Uh, 100% freelance model where there would just be a story editor who was like the writing showrunner in charge of the writing and the story editor would contract out to freelancers and it was rough man I'll tell you in those days you were pitching ideas to the story editor so you'd send him like four to six paragraphs of you know ideas for free and you'd hope right. that they would buy one of them and uh, they always pick the one that you you threw in the last minute as a, a hail mary. Like the, yes. all the ones you love, they they don't pick. They pick that one, and then you have to work hard and make that one work. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes I'd like put them in a different order. Like so, I put the one I really like last to like, or you know, like you know, so like maybe they'll you know, but yeah, these like. Is there a the secret? Did it work to do to do that one last? Does, does uh, you it... know, no. They always they always seem to hone in on the one that you're the least excited about. Like yeah, let's do that one. Like oh great, let's do it. But, um, you know, but you would have no guarantee of getting an assignment at the end of it. And that's kind of changed. I think most story editors now, if they ask you for to pitch some ideas, like, in, you know, in, whenever I've done that, I would always guarantee a script. So whether it's one of yours or one that I give you, you will get a on the job. show. If they can give you one, they will. But there's some that are just fake off that they just they yeah. have as pitch as possible. And then if you get one, you get one. Yeah, but then over time, thankfully, that model in large part has fallen away. So it seems like most shows are what Shane described that I've worked on. It's sort of a, a freelance staff where there'll be, a, you know, a, a head writer or, or story editor and maybe a, a number two person that's on staff. And then they would kind of use the same group of four or five writers. Um, they weren't being paid weekly, but they would get regular assignments on the show and they would bring in that staff for summits uh, where, you know, anywhere from usually two to two to three days uh, on the Star Wars shows, we would do three day summits up at Skywalker Ranch and we would fly up there and, and break five or six stories during those three days. Uh, on the Marvel shows, we usually just did two days. We'd break like six stories in two days in their windowless conference room um, with, with our little mini uh, staff of freelancers and uh, but recently I've been on a couple shows where we did have a full staff of writers on the show getting paid a, a weekly rate and 
just going to a writer's room every day for months or most every day for months and, and working on every single story together. Um, and just to be clear, when you're not being paid uh, an hourly rate, you're being paid per script. And there's different steps in the script. There's like, for example, you might have to write the premise, which is a more detailed pitch of what's going to happen. And then you write an outline, which is, it's not an outline the way you would do them in school. It's more like a narrative outline. It's like writing a story. And for most of the shows that I've worked on, they're super detailed. It's almost as if you're writing the script in a novel form. And then you write the script in a script form. And there might be a couple extra pages to work with once you've copied the novel and put it into a regular script form, but not that many. <laughs> so and then you're working it until it's, it's a, a good draft. And there's another draft. So you get paid for step. And it's usually like, you know, maybe a half, uh, half before the step and half after the step. But I usually, don't have time to bill a lot, so I'll just bill everything at the end. <laughs> yeah. So um. So yeah. So let's uh. Then we're kind of shifting into some of the creative uh challenges and um, very back at the beginning um, I think it was Shane that mentioned um, the difference between writing for animation versus live action and that you have to know that. So um, do you guys? I mean, without like not necessarily specific format things, but. What are what are the considerations that you have to have that are animation specific as a you're writing an episode of, a, of an animated show? Let's have Steve go first because he's been at this longer. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, all film, all visuals, it's all a visual medium, but animation perhaps more so. So I, I found in animation we tend to be, although it's changed over time. It, when I started. A half hour animation script was about 34 to 36 pages and we would describe shot by shot in all the ways they tell you not to write scripts <laughs> in film school. Don't direct on the page, except in animation when direct on the page. Um, that's certain studios have different uh, different needs for that. Like Lucasfilm doesn't like, Lucasfilm just wants, uh, it's almost like a live action script because they want their directors to, to really do the directing. Um, uh, other shows want more, like more detail, so you can do shot by shot stuff. I find that really tedious. Oh, uh, but you I, write it so well. I've seen, I've seen scripts for shows like that, and I and I love it. And I've I've fallen in love with that particular style because of reading scripts from those shows. And I I did get to look at one of yours, and it's uh, it was fantastic, and I I love it. And I and now there's a hybrid where you're kind of writing shot by shot but you're implying it by just capitalizing the thing that you're seeing and things like that. Yeah, that seems to be my, that's my style that I like. It's like kind of a hybrid. Yeah, so it's, it's more detail than I might write in a live action script, but less than in the old days of, you know, close up Wolverine, snick, you know, unleashes his claws, you know, reverse angle, you know, blah, 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 you know. Yeah. Um, I had trouble. I used a reverse, uh, I used a, a reverse, I, I said reverse to reveal. And I had trouble with a recent studio. They didn't know what that meant. I had to actually go through and find a film school thing to show them what re a reverse shot was. It's like, just, just, it's just you're looking at the person and then you're looking at the other person that they're looking at. You know, it's, it's not that big of a deal. But you know, then there's also the practical things in animation. There, there are some things that animation does better than other things. And you know, there's this misconception that in animation, the only limitation is your imagination. and you know, that's not necessarily true. Like animation shows have budgets just like anything else. And, you know, we, we, we have limits on, especially on a CGI show, you have pretty severe limitations on introducing new characters or new locations. So like, you know, you might only have the budget to have two new 
characters in your episode. So, and, and then, that explain that why? Uh, because yeah, in animation, you know, like in live action, you know, every character has to be designed. Every character has to be built in 3D and rigged and, you know, and all the, all the things that go into making that a model that can, that can act, like have facial expressions and, and all that sort of and thing. Cast. And cast. Even if you're doing 2D, you have to cast them and stuff. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're still paying, yeah, you're still paying an actor to voice the, the, the character. So you, you have all those same budgetary, you know, everything that you see has to be designed and built. Um, just like in live action. Um, it's maybe in some ways cheaper, but it's still our budgets aren't as high. So, um, so, so you have to be cognizant of the production limitations of your show and be responsible in that way. Um, and, and then there are things that, that certain media does better than others, like um, you know, interactions with water is a big one. In, in CGI, it's a real expensive pain in the ass to have characters interact with water, whereas in 2D, that's not 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 an issue. Um, so you, it's really important to know those kinds of things and to go into your stories knowing that and sort of design them to to play to the strengths of the medium. Because so, otherwise, you're just asking for disappointment. Yeah, you know, it's just going to come back and it's not going to be as good because it's just not producible in that way. One I just found out this year: uh, some animated characters are are designed so that their arms aren't long enough to reach their hat. <laughs> so you can't have them actually take their hat off and put it back on. Never noticed that until this year. <laughs> well, and that's that's a big deal. Like in CGI, a lot of usually like their costume pieces are part of the build of the character. So, you know, like you can't have someone like we in, we were doing a Star Wars thing where, you know, in the script it was like the the character takes off their gun belt. You can't really do that. You can't have them take off their gun belt because it's part of their texture of their body. So you'd have to make a whole new body without the gun belt. And then you'd have to like do some cutting away and you know, to and then you have to build the gun belt as a separate prop. So there, you know, but whereas in 2D, it's totally easy. You can just have to take, you know, take, do a costume change. It's you ridiculous. still can't, yeah, and some, you still can't, they can't reach. So you have to like cut to, you know, close up of the hand coming, getting, you know, yeah, they, they have to exactly. Yeah, all the, all the cheats like that. A lot of stuff is doable, but there's there, yeah, there's some things just like you know, don't write the scene where something, especially if it's if it's not important, don't write it in such a way that it's going to be a, a challenge or an expensive problem for production. Yeah, yeah I um I worked at Disney Feature Animation when they were basically in that time period where they're transitioning from hand drawn to CG, and I didn't have like a, it wasn't a creative job as a tech coordinator, but. Um, it was, I remember they had, a, they struggled a lot with um, designing, uh, creating a 3D Mickey Mouse or a CG Mickey Mouse because his ears are designed to always be a certain way, no matter which way his head is turned, which is really easy to do in 2D, but in CGI, that's a, that's a challenge. How do you design the model so that the ears don't kind of flatten out as he turns his head? Um, so things you don't, you know, you don't think about unless you're, you know, the animation side of things for sure. Yeah, and something on, on the writing part on scripts, uh, you're writing in every effort like so voice actors are an amazing breed of actors like you have actors right and you would think oh well you know your big famous actors could do voice acting not necessarily because there's something to being able to make it sound like this person climbing while they're doing it when you're not actually climbing or make it sound like they're muffled 
you know, I was just in a session, I'm like, well, maybe if you put your hand everywhere, they're like, no, that they won't be able to hear us. They're like, oh, but I could do one finger. No, sounds like I'm ruffled and you can hear me better, you know, and it's little stuff like that that you don't even, you wouldn't even think about, but these guys have had to think about it and they've, 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 they've made it a beautiful art. But yeah, uh, professional voice actors, it's like, they don't have the tools that like an on-camera actor has. They don't have their physicality or costume or- you have a wall in front of the climb. Yeah, it's, <laughs> their entire performance has to be crunched down into their voice. And that's a real talent that a lot of brilliant on-camera actors just don't have. They just can't do it. It just doesn't sound good. And we've had to recast a couple of times mm. over the years with like somebody like really excited about having him in and the performance just lays there mm. on tape. And then you get some of these professional voice actors that just really make stuff come alive. And yeah, there's a real art to these efforts, whether it's like fighting efforts or climbing efforts or whatever. And, and uh, you know, uh, this guy, he's an on-camera actor, Diedrich, Diedrich Bader. Yes, love uh, him. It, uh, he's great. He did Batman and Batman the Brave and the Bull, but he was so good at those efforts. He was so funny when Batman would get hit. You're like, Ugh. <laughs> he, was, he was so good at it. Yeah. So, and it's, it's, we have to write those in. As writers, you have to know how to write them in. Uh, so it's one difference between a live action script. And, you know, I found that somebody who was on staff, I think at Disney recently, you know, I, I was in a writer's group and they recently told me, you know, that's too many efforts. You're writing it like it's a, a, a shooting script. I'm like, this is how we write it in freelance. We always write the efforts in. And I've, now that I've been running a, a, a story edit a show and I've been sitting in on all the voice acting, I've noticed a lot of efforts are getting missed. Even, even, you know, even mine. Oh my gosh. You know, you 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 don't even think about every single effort and so the the guy who's voice directing is like adding in efforts in there and then after they've done some of the animation the, the rough animation or the what we call an animatic they realize oh you know it'll be really good to have a reaction here let's put an effort over you know let's put that kind of a reaction here and we're even missing those even when we're doing full you know the best we can do with efforts so uh so there's a lot that you really kind of need to think about when you're when you're doing a animation yeah, that seems to be, yeah, in the, in the old days, you would write in every single effort into a script uh, to make sure that they were covered. But now it seems more often they'll just do full ADR sessions and just pick up a lot of that stuff later once they decide. Because sometimes you might record an effort and it just doesn't work with how it's directed or boarded. So you're like, yeah, that's too big for that. You know, let's... Too long, yeah. Too long, yeah, too long. Or, they, or it's open mouth and they want a closed mouth or whatever, yeah. So, so where would someone go to kind of like learn this part of the business? Because you, you guys learned a lot of it, I guess, by experience, right? Of seeing their voice recording sessions and, and so forth. But uh, someone who is trying to break in and writing their spec script, how would they learn about it? You have to get a hold of, of scripts, of actual animation scripts. I happen to have a friend that helped me with that. Um, and I don't know how else you do it. There's, there, it's easier now, you can get them online but there's not as easy to find as like a live action script for sure. I think you can get some Batman scripts, Batman Brave and the Bold, I think. The, I think the pilot maybe is out there. Oh. It might be a different but, one. Yeah, the, good news is, the good news is this stuff is easier to find than ever. You know, like Shane was saying online, it's, you know, it's relatively easy to get uh, good sample scripts and, you know, and on a podcast like this one, you know, there's a lot of podcasts and, and, and things like that, that you can listen to, to, to get some insight into the process. And, you know, there was occasions where 
you know, uh, an aspiring writer will get in touch with me and, and ask to read something that I've written. And if it's, <laughs> and if it's, it's old enough and say, like, there's some shows I'm just not going to give out scripts for because yeah. the studios are very sensitive about it. So like, no one ever, don't ask me for a Star Wars script. I can't give those out. They're very protective of that material. But, you know, older stuff, I'm happy to, to send a PDF file so you can see the style and, and the, the formatting and, and that sort of thing. It's, that's how I learned. I, I learned from being invited into the files at Fox Kids. And, you know, I had literally giant stacks. I copied every single Batman, the animated series script that came in and brought it home and read it. And so that was my library to, that's how I learned the the sort of the grammar of uh, writing animation scripts. So I'm really thankful for that opportunity because that's like getting to read some of the best stuff out there, you know, in that raw form. Um, one other sort of, I guess, creative related question. Um, you know, a lot of the shows you guys are working on, um, uh, Steve, particularly you, uh, like based on these big franchises like Marvel, DC, Star Wars, how does that, how does that come into play? Uh, like is canon a big issue for you? Um, I'm sure it is for the fans. So uh, Steve, why do you take that? <laughs> yes, canon that, yeah, I, I've had the good fortune to work on a lot of shows that have huge fan followings and, and very devoted fan followings. And, and as a fan myself, I get it. I, you know, I, I understand wanting to know that all the stories fit together and you're being respectful of everything that came before. And, you know, on the shows that I've worked on, we try to do that as much as possible. There's a certain point when it's just unsustainable that a franchise will collapse under the weight of its own continuity. <laughs> it just, it's, it, it's, I don't envy the people at Star Trek, you know, after, you know, uh, the original series and then the original animated series and like 177 episodes of Next Generation and 170 some episodes of Deep Space Nine and 170 episodes of Voyager and seasons of, you know, Enterprise and, and everything else, like how in the God's name do you keep all that stuff straight? And Well, and isn't that how, why Crisis on Infinite Earths happened? I mean, kind yeah. of Marv Wolfman decided we're going to fix this continuity problem that we have with all the DC stuff. Exactly. And, you know, continuity is great. And that makes it for a really rich universe for a fan to, uh, to immerse yourself in. But as a storyteller, it's, it can be really limiting. And so like, you know, on Star Wars, for example, George Lucas decided that he wasn't going to be beholden to any continuity that wasn't from his movies or his TV shows. So that was called G-level canon, George-level canon. So only the, at the time, the six movies and the Clone Wars animated series counted. So all the comics and novels and video games, you know, it's all great and, and a lot of fun, but we weren't going to say like, well, we can't tell this story because in this Marvel comic from 1982, they did this thing, you know, we might pluck bits and pieces from that as a nod towards that continuity. And if we liked it, we would incorporate it. Like for example, in Star Wars Rebels, we knew we wanted to bring in a new antagonist, a sort of a Rommel character on the Imperial side. So we thought, what about Grand Admiral Thrawn? You know, it's an awesome character that appeared in those Timothy Zahn novels. And so we, we brought in that character and we talked to Timothy about it too. And uh, we tried to be as faithful to Timothy's creation of that character as we could be within the context of our show uh, without contradicting anything that he had overtly contradicting anything. 
Um, and so that is one example. And in Transformers Prime, there was a lot of Transformers continuity at that point. I think there were maybe 11 or 12 previous animated series, but we just had to start over. And, and we, our marching orders was don't contradict the Michael Bay movie directly. And uh, we had to be, uh, we couldn't contradict this novel that they had written that they decided was gonna be sort of the foundation of their new Transformers uh, chronology. So we had kind of a clean slate there, thankfully. So you guys uh, still paid a lot of homage to the original stuff. I mean, the- oh. Yeah, we outright stole stuff. I mean, we took stuff yeah. from all, yeah, stuff that we liked. And, you know, in, in the case of Transformers and also at Star at Lucasfilm, they have a story group. And we had this great guy, Pablo Hidalgo, who's, who's uh, you know, an incredible repository of no deep knowledge of Star Wars storytelling in all its forms. So he would sit in on all of our writers summits and all of our creative meetings. And if if it was if we were going to in danger of being of contradicting canon, he would speak up and explain why. Um, or if we were trying to solve a problem, he had this. You know, I'm I'm pretty good with my Star Wars knowledge, but Pablo is kind of next level, and uh, so he could bust out some great solutions and say like, you know, well, in you know whatever in Shadows of the Empire there was this. You know, like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. We can adapt that thing from from the past and for our show. Um, so that's that's kind of a whole new job description now is lore keeper. Blizzard has one of them, at least one. I'm sure there's more than one, but I met one from Blizzard. From Blizzard, yeah, exactly. And, and I, I, just to speak to all those fans out there, there is no writer that's walking in on a project going, I hate this project. I don't like Transformers. I'm going to ruin it as much as I can. You know, nobody's doing that. They get hired because they have a love for that particular thing or they're good at that particular thing and they're going to fall in love with it and they're they want to do the best job that they can do nobody's trying to ruin your childhood uh you know it's yeah. um it's important to understand that we're just doing our best you know yeah i always walked in like I, one of my early jobs in high school i worked at a vhs rental store back in the days when we rented videos and uh, I was reshelving movies one day, and and my boss and I was putting this one movie like, oh my god, I can't believe someone rented this piece of crap. And my <laughs> boss said, you know, every movie in this store is somebody's favorite movie, and that stuck with me after all these years. So even when I would get hired on a show, you know, sometimes it's just a job because you need to work, and this is a profession, and it may be material that you know it's like it's not my first choice, but. I know that this show is going to be somebody's favorite show. It's going to be really important to somebody. So I've always felt it's my responsibility as a writer to do the best job that I can on this show, you know, and, and take it as seriously and, and give it my best efforts. And, and I think that's, you have to be responsible like that as a writer on this stuff, or you're just not going to make it. You have to respect the material. Yeah, people who it. don't do that don't get hired again. You know, they just simply don't. And uh, Shane, from your, your background, uh, you know, you, you're working with a franchise, Hello Kitty. And um, so that is going to, that is a YouTube show, right? Um, and you've also worked on a Netflix show. Do you want to talk a little bit about the, the kind of changing market of animation? Or I guess we could call it that. Nobody knows. <laughs> it's all changing. It's kind of, uh, it's really exciting in, in some ways. Uh, there's kind of a pendulum a lot of times on the types of animation that's, that's being done. 
the types of, of shows that are being done, like for example, comedy versus versus action and, and things like that. Um, and comedy will tend to be shorter and action will tend to be longer, right? Well, now it's it's short form. A lot of a lot of YouTube shows. Um, and my daughter will watch YouTube and, and she'll watch longer form shows, but she really enjoys YouTube. And I've got a, she's got a friend who will only watch Octonauts and YouTube shows and, and he likes the short form and that's all he'll do. And he's, he's five, he'll be six soon. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I think internet's taking over, uh, and it's not all short form, but there's more opportunity for short form. So we're doing these three minute shorts and three minutes is really tough to tell a story in. It's, it's a lot of hard work, uh, but it's fantastic. It really exercises your, your creativity and your story skills and you keep people's attention for that long. And it's, it's so much fun. So we're working with these characters that have been around for forever. Um, and I'm working with a team at San Rio that, I mean, you, you see these happy characters behind me. Uh, these guys live this. I mean, they are really that happy. And I was just saying before we actually started that working with these guys uh, is, has been a joy. And in the pandemic, I couldn't think of a better place to, to be working because it's, it's, these people have this, this attitude. They're, they're excited to work, work on this. They're, they're happy. They're, you know, they just have a very positive attitude and they just want to make it the best show that they possibly can. And it's been an honor to, to work with these characters because of the people I'm working with, not just because of the characters. And I think these guys have a, a really good fan base. Whereas, you know, there, I've heard there are some toxic fan bases out there that are really hard to work with uh, for certain, you know, long-term franchises, especially the ones that have a lot of continuity issues and things like that. Um, but I think maybe that there's a, this, uh, this fan base might be just as, just as fun as the characters um, so i it's been it's been great it's a, a little bit difficult because we had to um figure out some things about the characters that didn't exist before but fortunately that there's a, a woman named cindy slothy and she did all that work really before i got there um and they were counting on me to be like here help us with this and i'm looking at it going this was really good. You did most of my work for me. So it was fantastic and you know, walking in there and she had some, uh, some prior experience working at animation companies. So um, in, in the marketing department and, and that's um, one of the differences I think is I'm working with a marketing department and, and people are probably like, oh, so you're making commercials. No, these guys want to, marketing people tell stories. They tell stories in short form and that's what a lot of commercials are is you gotta tell a story. And so these guys are fantastic at it. So I, you know, I don't know somebody, I, I used to work in marketing departments. I used to work on web pages. So I, I know how marketing works and I know how fantastic marketing people are. And I can see some, some cynical people going, oh, you're working with a marketing department. It's a toy show and you're trying to sell toys. That's not what we're doing. We're telling, we're telling stories about these awesome characters and they're, they're super magical. So I think um, I, I'm really excited. It's coming out at the end of October. Uh, first episode should be October 26th. And I, I don't know, I, I guess I just did a commercial for, <laughs> for our show, but, um, but working with this, this brand, I, you couldn't go wrong in a lot of ways because it's just such a happy, good brand and they know what they're doing. Uh, the marketing people are very protective of their stuff, but yet they know that to tell a good story, you, you need to have a little conflict, you know, like, for example, some shows, you know, preschool, especially in earlier 80s shows. We can't have the characters have any conflict and they can't have any, you know, we can't, it has to be all natural disasters and stuff like that. And you're like, well, how do you, 
you know, in real life, people have conflict with one another. How do you tell a story? So, I mean, there's not a lot of that because we only have three minutes, but I didn't have to worry about them, you know, having unreasonable requests or things like that. They were super reasonable, wonderful to work with, and just um, a, a great brand. So, I, I'm really looking forward to that. And this is, I would say, this is a really exciting time for animation because uh, as Shane pointed out, there's there's more outlets than ever before. Like Shane's over there on YouTube and we've got Netflix and Hulu and HBO Max and Adult Swim. And it's it's really great that animation, I think the stigma of adults watch, watching animation has largely fallen away. Like when I got started in the in the early 90s, most, you know, animation was for kids, strictly for kids, or maybe college, you know, high school or college, maybe, or some weirdo adults, you know, whatever. But now, like, we have this whole generation that's grown up with quality animation, like, that kind of, I think, started at Fox Kids. X-Men. Yeah, X-Men. Yeah, you know, X-Men and Batman and the Tick and Animaniacs and all these great shows that's, like, really smart well-written stuff but also very handsomely produced with good acting and the whole nine yards so we have the, a whole generation of, of people in their you know their 30s and 40s that grew up with this stuff and they're still watching and, and now we're starting to make animation for that market um the the the, the, sh the show that i worked on that's coming out it hasn't been announced yet and it doesn't even have a title yet the title keeps changing but it's coming early next year is a TVMA show on Netflix. Um, it's totally for grownups. And the show I'm working on now is probably, I used to call it a TV 15. It's kind of a, a sophisticated show for like older teenagers. Um, and, uh, and that's great. It's great that, that, uh, that, that, that stigma is gone. You know, it used to be maybe you could watch The Simpsons. It was okay to watch The Simpsons or Family Guy or something like that. But now there's all these great anime shows and, and original animes and and uh, sophisticated comedies, whether it's a, a BoJack Horseman or, you know, those kind of shows. It's, there's something for everyone out there and it's it's super exciting. And, and part of that is driven, I think, by the streamers and having, having shows that are in non-traditional formats. And it, especially like now we can have long story arcs that go across uh, different episodes like it used to be for the longest time you didn't know what order shows would be airing in and things like that so they didn't want a lot of stories that had long arcs even like it, as recently as like firefly i remember that hearing that that didn't get a lot of um it didn't find its feet right away because it didn't air in the right order and people were like kind of confused as to what was going on and yeah, the, the serialized storytelling that's really taken hold in, in uh, TV drama over the last 30 years has really started to go into animation where, you know, in Star Wars Rebels, we basically had a, it was a pretty serialized show, but towards the end, it was just one episode led right into the next. Like the whole fourth season is basically one story. And the, the shows I'm working on now are very serialized, you know, and because and it's Netflix. You can you binge know, watch like, them all. I'm sorry? Yeah, you can binge watch them. You don't have to yeah, watch them on Exactly. Board. You'll get that whole chunk of however many episodes it is, six or eight or ten, and you can watch mm -hmm. as many of them as you want uh, and really get that, uh, that serialized, long-form uh, storytelling. If you and want. You comics, technically, too, like you could download an earlier uh, issue. You don't have to have, you know, you don't have to 
kind of catch up and figure out so comics even are able to have more of a long-term story i think well that that seems like a good note hopeful happy note to end the uh the podcast on so uh thank you guys for coming and thanks for having us thanks for joining us everyone i hope you'll join us next month for more schmoozing about writing Thank you.